0: Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. Dating from 1837. Preface. My father's name is so well known in Queensland that no explanation of the title of this book is necessary. Its contents are simply what they profess to be Tom Petrie's Reminiscences. No history of Queensland being attempted, though a sketch of life in the early convict days is included in its pages. My father's association with the Queensland Aborigines from early boyhood, was so intimate, and extended over so many years, that his experience of their manners, their habits, their customs, their traditions, myths, and folklore, have an undoubted ethnological value. Realizing this, I determined as far as lay in my power to save from oblivion by presenting in book form, the vast body of information garnered in the perishable storehouse of one man's my father's memory. Constance Campbell Petrie. Marumba. North Pine. October. 1904. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences. Chapter 1. Perhaps no one now living knows more from personal experience of the ways and habits of the Queensland Aborigines than does my father Tim Petrie. His experiences amongst these fast dying out people are unique, and the reminiscences of his early life in this colony should be recorded. Therefore I take up my pen with the wish to do the little I can in that way. My father has spent his life in Queensland, being but three months old when leaving his native land. He was born in Edinburgh, and came out here with his parents to Stirling Castle in 1831. He is now the only surviving son of the late Andrew Petrie, a civil engineer, who, as everyone interested knows, had much to do with Queensland's young days. The Petrie family landed first in New South Wales, but in 1837, about 12 years after the foundation of Brisbane came onto Queensland in the James Watt, the first steamer which ever entered what are now Queensland waters. The late John Petrie, the eldest son, was a boy at the time, and Tom, of course, but a child. Their father, the founder of the family, was attached to the Royal Engineers in Sydney, and was chosen to fill the position of superintendent or engineer of works in Brisbane. The commandant in the latter place had been driven to petition for the services of a competent official, as there seemed no end to the blunders and mistakes always being made. The family came as far as Dunwich in the James Watt, then finished the journey in the pilot boat, manned by convicts, and landed at the King's Jetty the present Queen's Wharf the only landing place then existing. Although my father cannot look back to this day of arrival, he remembers Brisbane Town as a city of about ten buildings. Roughly speaking it was like this. At the present Truden's corner stood a building used as the first post office, and joined to it was the watch house, then further down the prisoners' barracks extended from above Chapman's to the corner, Grimes and Petty. Where the treasury stands stood the soldiers' barracks, and the government hospitals' and doctors' quarters took up the land the Supreme Court now occupies. The commandant's house stood where the new land's office was being built, his garden extending along the river bank, and not far away was the chaplain's quarters. The commissariat stores were afterwards called the colonial stores, and the block of land from the Longreach Hotel to Gray's Corner was occupied by the lumber yard, where the prisoners made their own clothes, etc. The windmill was what is now the observatory, and, lastly, a place formerly used as a female factory was the building Mr. Andrew Petrie lived in for several months till his own house was built. The factory stood on the ground now occupied by the post office, and later on Petrie's house was built at the present corner of Wharf and Queen Streets, going towards the Bight, hence the name Petrie's Bight. Their garden stretched all along the river bank where Thomas Brown and Sons Warehouse now stands, being bounded at the far end by the saltwater creek which ran up Creek Street. Kangaroo Point. New Farm, South Brisbane, and a lot of North Brisbane were then under cultivation, but the the rest was all bush, which at that time swarmed with Aborigines. So thick was the bush round Petrie's bite that one of the workmen, a prisoner, engaged in building the house there was speared. He wasn't much hurt, however, and recovered. While living at the bight when a boy, my father remembers watching the first steamer which ever came up the river, the James Watt stayed in the bay. When she rounded Kangaroo Point, with her paddles going, the blacks, who were collected together watching, could not make it out, And took fright, running as though for their lives. They were easily frightened in those days. Father remembers another occasion on which they were terrified. His father one night got hold of a pumpkin, and hollowing it out, formed on one side a face, which he lit up by placing a candle inside, the light shining through the openings of the eyes and mouth. This head he put on a pole, and then wrapping himself in a sheet with the pole he looked to the frightened blacks' imagination for all the world like a ghost, and they could hardly get away fast enough. From early childhood, Tom was often with the blacks, and since there was no school to go to, and hardly a white child to play with, he naturally chummed in with all the little dark children, and learned their language, which to this day he can speak fluently. A pretty, soft sounding language it is on his lips, but rather the opposite when spoken by later comers. Indeed, I do not think that any white man unaccustomed to it from childhood can ever successfully master the pronunciation. Tom, and his only sister, when children used to hide out among the bushes, in order to watch the blacks during a fight, and once when the boy had been severely punished by his father for smoking he ran away from home, and after his people had looked everywhere, they found him at length in the blacks' camp out Bowen Hills Way. There was one black fellow at that time these children used to torment rather unmercifully. A very fierce old man, feared even by the blacks, who believed he could do anything he chose in the way of causing death, etc. He was called, Mindemindy, or, Cabin Tom, by the whites was the head of a small fishing tribe who generally camped at the mouth of the South Pine River, and was a great warrior. One day the children found him outside their home. They teased and called him names in his own tongue till the man grew so fierce that he chased the youngsters right inside. The girl got under a bed, and Tom, up on a chair, where the black fellow caught him, and taking his head in his hands started to screw his neck. One hand held the boy's chin and the other the top of his head, and in a few minutes more his life would have ended, but the screams brought the mother just in time. Father's neck was stiff for some time after this, and the children never tormented old, Cabin Tom, again. They always declared that this man had a perfectly blue tongue, and the palms of his hands were quite white. It was said that he screwed his own little daughter's neck, and thought nothing of such things. However, he and Tom, were generally friends. Indeed this is about the only occasion on which the boy fell out with a black fellow. Cabin Tom, must have been about 90 when he died, and was a very white-haired old man. He was found lying dead one day in the mud in the Brisbane River. Later on in life, when my father employed the blacks, they were always kind and considerate about him. They are naturally an affectionate people, and he with his good and kindly disposition, and his fun for the blacks do so enjoy a joke was very popular with them all. Nowadays it is seldom one sees an aboriginal, but some years ago. When they would come at times and camp round about here, North Pine, it was amusing to see the excitement when they found their old friend in the mood for a yarn. To watch their faces was as good as a play, and to hear father talk with them it seemed all such nonsense, and many a time has someone looking on been convulsed with laughter. Good-natured people they surely are, for amusement at their expense does not call forth resentment, rather would they join in the laugh. Queensland is a large country, and the tribes in the north differ in their languages, habits, and beliefs from the blacks about Brisbane. Father was very familiar with the Brisbane tribe Turbal and several other tribes, all belonging to southern Queensland, who had different languages but the same habits, etc. The Turbal language was spoken as far inland as Gold Creek or mogul as far north as North Pine and south to the Logan. But my father could also speak to and understand any black from Ipswich, as far north as Mount Perry, or from Fraser, Bryby, Stradbroke. And Morden Islands. Of all the black fellows who were boys when he was a boy, there is only one survivor. Most of them died prematurely through drink, introduced by the white man. On first coming, nearly 45 years ago, to North Pine, which is 16 miles by road from Brisbane, the country roundabout was all wild bush, and the land my father took up was a portion of the Whiteside Run. The blacks were very good and helpful, lending a hand to split and fence and put up stockyards, and they would help look after the cattle and yard them at night. For the young fellow was all alone, no white man would come near him, being in dread of the blacks. Here he was among two hundred of them, and came to no harm. When with their help he had got a yard made, and a hut erected, he obtained flour, tea, sugar. And tobacco from Brisbane, and leaving these rations in the hut, in charge of an old Aboriginal, went again to Brisbane, and was away this time a fortnight. Fifty head of cattle he also left in the charge of two young blacks, trusting them to yard these at night, etc., and to enable the young darkies to do this, he allowed them each the use of a horse and saddle. On his return, all was as it should be, not even a bit of tobacco missing. And those who know no better say the Aborigines are treacherous and untrustworthy. Father says he could always trust them, and his experience has been that if you treated them kindly they would do anything for you. On the occasion just mentioned during his absence, a station about nine miles away ran short of rations, and the stockman was sent armed with a carbine and a pair of pistols to see if he could borrow from father. Arrived at his destination, the man found but blacks, and they simply would give him nothing until the master's return. The hut had no doors at the time, and yet they hunted for their own food, touching nothing. A further refutation of the treachery and untrustworthiness of the blacks is the following One young fellow, learning to ride in those days, was thrown several times. My father. Vexed with the mare ridden, mounted her himself, and giving the animal a sharp cut with his riding whip, sent her off at full gallop. He carried a revolver in his belt, which he always had handy, as often the blacks would get him to shoot kangaroos they had surrounded and hunted into a water hole. The mare galloped on, then, stopping suddenly, somehow threw her rider, in spite of his good seat. The first thing he remember read afterwards was seeing a company of blacks collected round him, crying, and one old man on his knees sucking his back, where the hammer of the revolver had struck. They then carried him to his hut, and in the morning he was nothing but stiff after his adventure. And there was no white man about. Many a time when the blacks wished to gather their tribes together for a corroboree, dance and song, or fight they would send on two men to inquire of father which way to come so as not to disturb his cattle. This was more than many a white man would do, he says. To him they were always kind and thoughtful, and he wishes this to be clearly understood, for sometimes the blacks are very much blamed for deeds they were really driven to, and of course they resented unkindness. For instance, the owner of a station some distance away used to have his cattle speared and killed. Father would remonstrate and ask the why, and the blacks would answer. It was because if that man caught any of them he would shoot them down like dogs. Then they told this tale. A number of blacks were on the man's run, scattered here and there, looking for wild honey and opossums. When the owner came upon them and shooting one young fellow, first broke his leg, Then another shot in the head killed him. The superior white man then hid himself to watch what would happen. Presently the father came looking for his son, and he was shot, the mother coming after met the same fate. My father knew the blacks well who told him this, and was satisfied they spoke truthfully. It may strike the reader why did he not make use of his information and bring punishment to the offender? well, because in those days a black fellow's evidence counted as nothing, and no good would therefore be gained, but rather the opposite, as the bitterness would be increased, and the blacks get the worst of it. You see, the white men had so many opportunities for working harm, at that time several aboriginals were poisoned through eating stolen flour, it having been carefully left in a hut with arsenic in it. To show that the aborigines were not unforgiving, here is an example. The squatter before mentioned, who shot the blacks, went once to father to see if he would use his influence with the aborigines and get them to go to his station and drive wild cattle from the mountain scrub a difficult undertaking. He agreed to see what could be done, on condition that the blacks were considerably treated, and advised the man to leave all firearms behind, and accompany him to their camp, where he would do his best. Oh, no, I can't do that, was the reply. If you won't come to the camp, replied father, they will not understand, and won't go, you need fear nothing, they will not touch you while I'm there. After some discussion, the man was persuaded, though he evidently was in fear and trembling during the whole interview. The blacks agreed to go next day, which they did, leaving their gins and piccaninnies under father's care till their return. In three days they were back, and reported they had got a number of cattle from the scrub, and that the man, John Master, they called him had killed a bull for them to eat, and was all right now, not saucy anymore they added that they had agreed to go back again and strip bark for him this second time the blacks took their women folk and children and were away for two or three weeks working for the squatter cutting bark etc and were evidently quite contented and happy however in the meantime a report was got up on the station to the effect that the blacks were killing some of the cattle, so a man was sent to where Sandgate now is to ask assistance from the black police, who were stationed there. These black police were aborigines from New South Wales and distant places, and they, with their white leader, came and shot several blacks, the remaining poor things returning at once to their friend in a great state, protesting they had not touched a beast. Father met the squatter soon after, and said to him, You're a nice sort of fellow, how could you cause those poor blacks to be shot like that? You know perfectly well they did not kill your cattle. The man excused himself by saying that it was done without his knowledge, that he had a young fellow learning station work who got frightened over the blacks, and went for the police on his own account. Another time, while out riding in the bush, my father heard a great row, and a voice calling, round them up, boys. And on galloping up he came upon a number of poor blacks men, women, and children all in a mob like so many wild cattle, surrounded by the mounted black police. The poor creatures tried to run to their friend for protection, and he inquired of the officer in charge what was the meaning of it all the officer a white man and one by the way who was noted for his inhuman cruelty replied that they merely wished to see who was who but father knew that if he hadn't turned up a number of the poor things would have been shot can one wonder there were murders committed by the blacks seeing how they were sometimes treated this same police officer wheeler by name, later on was to have been hanged for whipping a poor creature to death, but he escaped and fled from the country. It is possible he is still alive. His victim was a young blackfellow, whom he had tied to a veranda post, and then brutally flogged till he died. Three men were once murdered at St Helena Island by aboriginals, and this is the side of the question given by, Billy Dingy so called by the whites, one of the blacks concerned. Billy said, that he and two other young men, each with his young wife, were taken in a boat by three white men, who promised to land them at Bribey Island, as it was then the great, Bunya season, and the aborigines always met there before traveling to the Bunya mountains. Or, to be correct, Bunya mountains the natives always pronounced it so. Of the Bon season, I will speak later on. Well, these men, instead of doing as they had promised, landed at St. Helena, and their set nets for catching dugong, acting as though they had not the slightest intention of going near Bribe. They also took possession of the young jinns, paying no heed to Billy, who pleaded for their wives and to be taken to Bribe as promised. So Billy, poor soul, didn't know what to do and at last bethought him to kill the men. He did it in this way. Some distance from where they were camped a cask was sunk in the sand for fresh water, and Billy, in broken English, called to one of the men, Bob Hunter by name, Bob, Bob, come quick, bring gun, plenty duck sit down longer here. Bob went to Billy all unthinking, and, passing the cask in the sand knelt to drink. There was Billy's chance, and he took it, striking the man from behind with a tomahawk on the back of the head. Bob threw up his arm to save himself, only to be cut on the arm, and then again on the head, and was killed. Billy then dragged him down to the water, and that was the end of that man. On returning to the camp after this, deed of darkness, Billy told the Jinns in his own language of what had happened, and that he meant to finish by killing the other two, and they then could all get away together. The Jinns begged him not to kill the others, but his mind was fixed, and remained unmoved. Fortune favored him surely, for he found one man alone sitting by a campfire smoking, and, creeping up stealthily behind him, cut open his head with the tomahawk, and this man's body was in turn dragged to the water. There now remained but one other, and he at that time away in the scrub shooting pigeons. Billy followed, and, watching his opportunity, struck the white man as he stooped to go under a vine. This last body was also dragged to the water, and that was the end of the three, and who can say the blacks were wholly to blame. After the white men were thus disposed of, the natives all got into the boat and came to the mouth of the Pine River, where they left the boat, and walking round on the mainland opposite Bribie, swam across to the island. Bob Hunter's body was afterwards recovered, and it had a cut on the arm even as Billy described to my father. The other bodies were never found, and it was thought they were eaten by sharks. My father had these three men, Billy and the others, working for him afterwards till their death, and found them all right. He was also alone for days with Billy in the forest looking for cedar timber. An old man called Gray was killed at Bribey Island, July 1849. This is the Black's version as told to their friend gray used to go to Bribey with a cutter for oysters he had a black boy as a help when gathering the oysters on the bank and he imagined this boy wasn't fast enough in his work so beat him rather unmercifully being blessed with a bad temper the boy escaped and ran away from the oyster bank swimming to the island and he told the blacks of his ill treatment they worked up to resentment and went across and killed gray Father says of the latter, I knew poor old Grey well, he was a very cross old man, and many a slap on the side of the head I got from him when a boy. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences. Chapter 2. Having given some instances as proof of the statement that the blacks were murderers or quite otherwise, according to the white man's treatment of them, I will pass now to their native customs, and tell you of the Bonny season. Bonnyi, the native name for the pine, Araucaria bidwillii, has been wrongly accepted and pronounced bunya. To the blacks it was Bonnyi, the I, being sounded as an E, in English, Bonnyi. Grandfather, Andrew Petrie, discovered this tree, but he gave some specimens to a Mr. Bidwill, who forwarded them to the old country, and hence the tree was named after him, not after the true discoverer. Of this more anon, the Bonyi tree bears huge cones, full of nuts, which the natives are very fond of. Each year the trees bear a few cones, but it was only in every third year that the great gatherings of the natives took place, for then it was that the trees bore a heavy crop, and the blacks never failed to know the season. These gatherings were really like huge picnics, the Aborigines belonging to the district sending messengers out to invite members from other tribes to come and have a feast. Perhaps 15 would be asked here, and 30 there, and they were mostly young people, who were able and fit to travel. Then these tribes would in turn ask others. For instance, the Bribe blacks, Nunda tribe, on receiving their invitation would perchance invite the Turbal people to join them, and, the latter would then ask the Logan, or Yagapal tribe, and other island blacks, and so on from tribe to tribe all over the country, for the different tribes were generally connected by marriage, and the relatives thus invited each other. Those near at hand would all turn up old and young, but the tribes from afar would leave the aged and the sick behind. My father was present at one of these feasts when a boy for over a fortnight. He is the only free white man who has ever been present at a Bonnyi feast. Two or three convicts in the old days, who escaped and lived afterwards with the blacks James Davis, Duramboy, Bracefield, Wandi, and Fahi Gilbury, of course, knew all about it, but they are dead now. Father met the two former after their return to civilization, and he has often had a yarn with the old blacks who belonged to the tribes they had lived with. In those early days the Blackall Range was spoken of as the Bonnyi Mountains, and it was there that Duramboy and Bracefield joined in the feasts, and there also that Father saw it all. He was only 14 or 15 years old at the time, and travelled from Brisbane with a party of about 100, counting the women and children. They camped the first night at BUU Bar, Shin of Leg, the native name for the creek crossing at what is now known as Anogara. After the camp fires were made and broken winds of bushes put up as a protection from the night, the party all had something to eat then gathered comfortably round the fires, and settled themselves ready for some good old yarns, till sleep would claim them for his own. Tales were told of what forefathers did, how wonderful some of them were in hunting and killing game, also in fighting. The blacks have lively imaginations of what happened years ago, and some of the incidents they remembered of their big fights, etc. were truly marvellous. They are also born mimics, and my father has often felt sore with laughing at the way they would take off people, and strut about, and imitate all sorts of animals. When Aborigines are collected anywhere together, each morning at daylight a great cry arises, breaking through the silence, this is the CRV for the dead. Imagine it, falling on the stillness after the night. It comes with the dawn and d the first call of the birds, as the Australian bush awakens and stirs, so do Australia, dark children or, rather they used to, for all is changed now. It must have been weird, that wailing noise and crying, but one could imagine the birds and animals expecting it and listening for it, and the sun in those days would surely have thought something had gone wrong, had there been no great cry to accompany his arising whether the dead were better for mourning who can say but they were always faithfully mourned for each morning and at dusk each night it was crying and wailing and cursing all mixed up together and kept going for 10 to 20 minutes such a noise being made that it was scarcely possible to hear oneself speak each person vowed vengeance on their relative s murderer swearing all the time To them it was an oath when they called a man, big head, swelled body, crooked leg, etc. And so they cursed and howled away, using all the oaths they could think of. There was never a lack of someone to mourn for, so this cry was never omitted, night or morning. After the dying down of the cry at daybreak, the blacks would have their morning meal, and then, as in the case of this journey to the Bonyi Mountains, when my father accompanied them, they made ready to move forward on their way. The black fellow would shout out the name of the place at which they were to meet again that night, this time it happened to be the pine and off they all went, hunting here and there, catching all sorts of animals, getting wild honey, too, and and coming into the appointed place that night laden with spoil. This same thing went on day by day, and father was treated like a prince among them all. They never failed to make him a humpy for the night, roofed with bark or perhaps grass, while for themselves they didn't trouble, unless it rained. The third night they camped at Kabulcha, Kabulter, place of carpet snakes, and the next day started for the Glasshouse Mountains during this journey my father noticed some superstitions of the blacks for instance going up the spur of a hill on the stillness after the night it comes with the dawn and the first call of the birds as the australian bush awakens and stirs so do australia's dark children or rather they used to for all is changed now it must have been weird, that wailing noise and crying, but one could imagine the birds and animals expecting it and listening for it, and the sun in those days would surely have thought something had gone wrong, had there been no great cry to accompany his arising. Whether the dead were better for the morning, who can say? But they were always faithfully mourned for, each morning, and at dusk each night. It was crying and wailing and cursing all mixed up together, and kept going for 10 to 20 minutes, such a noise being made that it was scarcely possible to hear oneself speak. Each person vowed vengeance on their relative, s murderer, swearing all the time. To them it was an oath when they called a man, big head, swelled body, crooked leg, etc., and so they cursed and howled away, using all the oaths they could think of. There was never a lack of someone to mourn for, so this cry was never omitted, night or morning. After the dying down of the cry at daybreak, the blacks would have their morning meal, and then, as in the case of this journey to the Bonnyi Mountains, when my father accompanied them, they made ready to move forward on their way. The blackfellow would shout out the name of the place at which they were to meet again that night, this time it happened to be the pine and off they all went, hunting here and there, catching all sorts of animals, getting wild honey, too, and coming into the appointed place that night laden with spoil. This same thing went on day by day, and father was treated like a prince among them all. They never failed to make him a humpy for the night, roofed with bark or perhaps grass, while for themselves they didn't trouble, unless it rained. The third night they camped at Kabulcha, Kabulter, place of carpet snakes, and the next day started for the Glasshouse Mountains. During this journey my father noticed some superstitions of the blacks. For instance, going up the spur of a hill a dog ran through between the legs of a black fellow, and the man stood stock still and called the dog back, making it return through his legs. When asked why, he said they would both die otherwise. Then, again, they travelled along a footpath, which ran up a ridge, where there was but room to walk one by one, and the white boy noticed a half-fallen tree leaning across the way. Coming to the tree, the first black fellow paused and pulled a bush from the roadside, and, throwing it down on the path, quietly walked round the tree, the rest following him. Father asked the reason, and the man said that if any one walked under that tree his body would swell, and he would die, he also said that he threw the bush down as a warning to the others my father, of course, boy-like, wished to show there was nothing in all this, and walked assuredly under the tree, drawing attention to the fact that he didn't die. Oh, but you are white, they said. It was the same thing always with regard to a fence, the aboriginals would never climb through or under a fence, but always over, thinking here too that their body would swell and they would die. In the same way a black fellow would rather you knocked him down than have you step over him or any of his belongings, because to him it meant death. Supposing a jinn stepped over one of them naughty woman, she would be killed instantly. Father has lain on the ground, and offered to let men, women, and children all step over his body, and if he died they were right in their belief, but, if not, they were wrong. He offered blankets, flour, a tomahawk, but no, nothing would induce them, for they said they did not wish to see him die. As he survived the great ordeal of walking under a tree, because of being a white man, one would think they would risk the other, especially with a promised reward in view. But not they. Of course, we are speaking of the past, the blacks one sees of late years will go through a fence or under a tree or anything, just as they will smoke or drink spirits. They used to be fine, athletic men, remarkably, free from disease, tall, well-made and graceful, with wonderful powers of enjoyment, now they are often miserable, diseased, degraded creatures. The whites have contaminated them. On the fourth day of this journey, about four o'clock, the party arrived near Malula at a creek with a scrub on it, and all hands fell to making fires for cooking purposes, etc., and they stripped some bark to make a hot nudur, for their white friend to sleep in, some placing a, picky, vessel made from bark, of water ready to his hand, others bringing him yams and honey or anything he fancied to eat. He had a little flour and tea and sugar with him, which the blacks carried, but never touched, leaving them for him. They did not think it worthwhile making huts for themselves for one night, but just camped alongside the fire with opossum rug coverings. Arriving at the Blackall Range, the party made a halt at the first bonnie tree they came to, and a black fellow accompanying them, who belonged to the district, climbed up the tree by means of a vine. When a native wishes to climb a tree that has no lower branches he cuts notches or steps in the trunk as he goes up, ascending with the help of a vine held round the stem. But my father's experience has been that the blacks would never by any chance cut a bony, affirming that to do so would injure the tree, and they climbed with the vine alone, the rough surface of the tree helping them This tree they came first upon was a good specimen, io feet high before a branch, and when the native climbing could reach a cone he pulled one and opened it with a tomahawk to see if it was all right. The others said if he did not do this the nuts would be empty and worthless, and father noticed afterwards that the first cone was always examined before being thrown to the ground. Then the man called out that all was well, and, throwing down the cone, he broke a branch, and with it poked and knocked off other cones. As they fell to the ground, the blacks assembled below would break them up, and, taking out the nuts, put them in their dilly bags. Afterwards they went further on, and, camping, made fires to roast the nuts, of which they had a great feed roasted. They were very nice. Next day they travelled on again, till they came to where the tribes were all assembling from every part of the country, some hailing from the Burnett, Wide Bay, Bundaberg, Mount Perry, Gympie, Bribe, and Fraser Islands, Gainder, Kilroy, Mount Brisbane, and Brisbane. When all turned up there numbered between six O and seventy O blacks. According to some people, the numbers would run to thousands at these feasts. That may have been so in other parts of the country, but not there on the Blackall Ranges. Each black fellow belonging to the district had two or three trees which he considered his own property, and no one else was allowed to climb these trees and gather the cones, though all the guests would be invited to share equally in the eating of the nuts. The trees were handed down from father to son, as it were, and everyone, of course, knew who the owners were great times those were and what lots of fun these children of the woods had in catching patty melons in the scrub with their nets also in obtaining other food of which there was plenty such as opossums snakes and other animals turkey eggs wild yams native figs and a large white grub which was found in dead trees these latter are as thick as one's finger and about three inches long They were very plentiful in the scrubs, and the natives knew at a glance where to look for them. They would eat these raw with great relish, as we do an oyster, or they would roast them. Then the young tops of the cabbage tree palm, and other palms which grew there, served as a sort of a vegetable, and were not bad, according to my father. The bony nuts were generally roasted, the blacks preferring them so, but they were also eaten raw. It will be seen that there was no lack of food of different kinds during a Bonyi feast, the natives did not only live on nuts as some suppose. To them it was a real pleasure getting their food. They were so light-hearted and gay, nothing troubled them, they had no bills to meet or wages to pay. And, there were no missionaries in those days to make them think how bad they were. Whatever their faults father could not have been treated better and when they came into camp of an afternoon about four o'clock, from all directions, laden with good things opossums, carpet snakes, wild turkey eggs, and yams he would get his share of the best as much as he could eat. The turkey eggs were about the size of a goose egg, and the fresh ones were taken to Thwyboy, while addled eggs, or those, let me whisper, with chickens in them, were eaten and relished by the blacks after being roasted in the hot ashes. My father always noticed how open-handed and generous the Aborigines were. Some of us would do well to learn from them in that respect. If there were unfortunates, who had been unlucky in the hunt for food, it made no difference, they did not go without, but shared equally with the others. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences Chapter 3 It has often been given out as a fact that the blacks and grew so tired of nuts and vegetable foods during a backquote bonye feast that to satisfy the craving that grew upon them for animal food, they terminated the meeting by the sacrifice of one gin or more. This is quite untrue, according to my father. As I have shown, the blacks had plenty of variety in the way of food during these gatherings, and, besides, on their way to the Bonyi Mountains they traveled along the coast as much as was possible, and got fish and oysters as they went along. Then, after the feast was all over, they repaired again to the coast, where they lived for some time on the change of food. The following passage from Dr. Lang's Queensland, issued in 1864, was quoted once by a gentleman, Mr. A. W. Howard, who doubted its accuracy and wished my father's opinion on the subject. At certain gatherings of some tribes of Queensland young girls are slain in sacrifice to propitiate some evil divinity, and their bodies likewise are subjected to the horrid rite of cannibalism. The young girls are marked out for sacrifice months before the event by the old men of the tribe. Dr. Lang, says Mr. Howard, gave this on the authority of his son, Mr. G.D. Lang, who, as the good doctor puts it, happened to reside for a few months in the Wide Bay District. My father says there is no truth in this statement, it is just hearsay as there was no such thing as sacrifice among the Queensland Aborigines, nor did they ever kill anyone for the purpose of eating them. They were most certainly cannibals, however, as they never failed to eat anyone killed in fight, and always ate a man noted for his fighting qualities, or a, Turwin, great man, no matter how old he was, or even if he died from consumption. It was very peculiar but they said they did it out of pity and consideration for the body they knew where he was then, he won't stink. The old tough gins had the best of it. No one troubled to eat them. Their bodies weren't of any importance, and had no pity or consideration shown them. On the other hand, for the consumer's own benefit this time, a young, plump gin would always be eaten, or anyone dying in good condition. I do not mean to infer that the Aborigines ate no human flesh during a Bon feast, for someone might die and be eaten at any time, and then, too, they always ended up with a big fight, and at least one combatant was sure to be killed. People speak of the great numbers killed in fight, but after all they were but few, though wounds, and big ones, too, were plentiful enough. At night during the Bonyi season the blacks would have great corroborees, the different tribes showing their special corroboree, song and dance, to each other, so that they might all learn something fresh in that way. For instance, a northern tribe would show theirs to a southern one, and so on each night, till at last when they left to journey away again. They each had a fresh corroboree to take with them, and this they passed on in turn to a distant tribe. So from tribe to tribe a corroboree would go traveling for hundreds of miles both north and south, and this explains, I suppose, how it was that the Aborigines would often sing songs the words of which they did not understand in the least, neither could they tell you where they had first come from. When about to have a corroboree, the women always got the fires ready, and the tribe wishing to show or teach their special corroboree to the others, would rig themselves out in full dress. This meant they had their bodies painted in different ways, and they wore various adornments, which were not used every day. Men always had their noses pierced, women never had, and it was considered a great thing to have a bone through one's nose. This bone was generally taken from a swan's wing, but it might be from a hawk, wing or a small bone from the kangaroo's leg, and was supposed to be about four inches long. It was only worn during corrobories or fights, and was called the bulawalam. In everyday life a man always wore a belt or makamba, in which he carried his boomerang. This belt measured from 6 feet to 8 feet in length, and was worn twisted round and round the waist. It was netted either from possum or human hair, but only the great men of the tribe wore human hair belts. A man could also wear grass bugle necklaces at any time, these being made from reeds cut into little pieces and strung together on a string of fiber. But in addition to his everyday dress, During a corroboree a black fellow would wear round his forehead a band made from root fiber, very nicely plaited, and painted white with clay, also the skin of a native dog's tail cured with charcoal and dried in the sun, or, rather, a part of one, for one tail made three headdresses when cut up the middle. This piece of tail stuck round the head like a beautiful yellow brush the natives called it, jilla, and the forehead band, tingle. Then on his arm kangarooskin bands were worn, and these had to be made from the underbody part of the skin, which was of a much lighter color than the back. Lastly, a man was ornamented with swans down stuck in his hair and beard, and in strips up and down his body and legs, back and front, or, if he was an inland black, parrot feathers took the place of the down. Women wore practically no ornaments except necklaces, and feathers stuck in their short hair in bunches, with beeswax. The feathers and beeswax were always ready in their dillies. Their hair was always kept short, as they were apt to tear at each other when fighting. Men's hair grew long, and some of the great men had theirs tied up in a knob on the top of the head, and when such was the case they wore in this knob little sticks ornamented with yellow feathers from the cockatoo's topknot. The feathers were fastened to the ends of the sticks with beeswax, and these sticks were stuck here and there in the knob of hair, as Japanese places little fans, and they looked quite nice. When a good fire was raging the jinns all sat in rows of three or four deep behind the fire. The old and married jinns would have an opossum rug folded up between their thighs, which they beat with the palms of their hands, and so kept time with the song they sang. The young women beat time on their naked thighs. They held the left wrist with the right hand, and then, with the free hand open, slapped their thighs, making a wonderful noise and keeping excellent time. A pair of black fellows standing up in front of the jinns between them and the fire, would beat two boomerangs together, and these men were in, full dress, as were those who danced on the other side of the fire. First these latter stood some distance off in the dark, but so soon as the singing and beating of time began they would dance up to the others. The men and women learning the corroboree stood behind the rows of gins seated on the ground, and two extra men, other than those with boomerangs, stood placed like sentinels before the women, with torches in their hands, and they were generally also strangers learning. The torches were fashioned from tea tree bark, and made a splendid blaze, aiding the fire in its work of lighting up the dancers for the benefit of those concerned. Some few women would dance, but they kept rather apart in front of the others, and their movements were different to those of the men somewhat stiffer. Always there were two or three funny men among the dancers, men who caused mirth and amusement by their antics. Even the blacks had members who could act the goat. The Aborigines painted their bodies according to the tribe to which they belonged, so in a corroboree or fight they were recognized at once by one another. In the former, there would perhaps be ever so many different tribes mixed up, for they might all know the same dance. Father says it was a grand sight to see about 300 men at a time dancing in and out, painted all colors. There they would be, men white and black, men white and red, men white and yellow, and yet others a shiny black with just white spots all over them, or, in place of the spots, rings of white round legs and body, or white strips up and down. Yet again there were those who would have strange figures painted on their dark skins, and no matter which it was, one or the other, they were all neatly, and even beautifully, got up. There they would dance with their headdress waving in the air the swans down, the parrot feathers, or the little sticks with the yellow cockatoo feathers. And, of course, the rest of the dress added to the spectacle the native dogs' tails round their heads, the bones in their noses, and the various belts and other arrangements. The dancers would keep up these gaieties for a couple of hours and then all would return to camp, where they settled down to a sort of meeting somewhat after the style of a Salvation Army gathering. One man would stand up and start a story or lecture of what had happened in his part of the country, speaking in a loud tone of voice, so that all could hear. When he had finished, another man from a different tribe stood forth and gave his descriptions, and so until all the tribes had been represented. Then perhaps a man of one tribe would accuse one from another of being the cause of the death of a friend, and this would lead to a challenge and fight. Things would be kept going sometimes up to midnight, when quiet reigned supreme again till the daybreak cry for the dead. And if this was a strange sound when two or three tribes were gathered together, what must it have been coming from all these many peoples assembled for a Bonny feast? It would start perhaps by one old man wailing out, and then in another direction, someone would answer, then another would take up the cry and so on, till the different crying and chanting of all the different tribes rose on the air, with the loud, swears, and threats of what they would do when the enemy was caught, relieving the wailing, monotony. So the days went on for a month or more, and the blacks employed their time in various ways some would hunt while others made weapons preparing for the great fight which always came off at the finish when a time for this was fixed, all would repair to an open piece of country and there would keep the fight going for a week or so of the way this was managed I will speak another time. At the finish of the great fight the tribes would start off homewards, parting the very best of friends with each other, and carrying large supplies of bonny nuts with them. The blacks of the district sought out a damp and boggy place soft mud and water, with perhaps a spring and buried their nuts there, placed in dilly bags. Then off they went to the coast, living there on fish and crabs for the space of a month, when they returned, and, digging up the nuts, had another feast, relishing them all the more no doubt because of the change to the seaside. The nuts when unearthed would have a disagreeable, musty smell, and would be all sprouting, but when roasted were improved greatly. The blacks from afar would also go to the coast if they had friends there who invited them, and they would be glad of a corroboree that took them seawards, if only for the one reason that they might have a change of food. I omitted to mention that on the way to these feasts the blacks in those days would often catch emus in the vicinity of the glass house mountains, and also get their eggs. This my father knew from what was told him, though none were found when he accompanied them. The feathers the jinns used to stick in their hair on state occasions. At any time when a certain tribe had learnt a new corroboree they would take the trouble to go even a long distance in order to pass it on. They first sent messengers to men and their jinns to say they had learnt, or perhaps made, a fresh song and dance, and were coming to teach it. They would very likely stay a week and then go home again, or perhaps a number of tribes would all congregate. Father has seen about 500 Aborigines at a corroboree on Petrie's Creek, and they came from all parts some from the far interior. Some of them there had never seen a boat before, and made a great wonder of it, looking it, over and examining it everywhere. Father knew an old Morden Island man, a great character, head of that tribe, who was a good hand at making corroborees. He would disappear at times to a quiet part of the island, the others saying he had gone into the ground, and when he, reappeared he had a fresh song and dance to impart. The blacks would sing sometimes of an incident which had happened, and in the dance make movements to carry out the song. For instance, if they sang of rowing they moved in the dance like an oarsman at times if the words were decided upon the whole tribe would suggest movements which best carried them out one of the songs my father can sing was composed by a man at the pine and was based upon an incident which really happened father heard of the happening at the time and afterwards learned the corroboree here is the whole story three boats went out in winter time turtling from kuchimudlo island kuchimudlo redstone It was after the advent of the whites, and the natives wanted the turtles for sale, not for their own use. In one of the boats was a man called Bobawinter, who was always successful in his ventures after turtle, being very good at diving, and clever in handling the creatures. Presently this boatloader spied a turtle, and gave chase, and whenever Bobawinter got a chance he jumped overboard, diving after it. However, it was an extra big one, and he could not manage to bring it up. Those watching above saw bubbles rise to the surface, and knew he was blowing beneath the water to cause the bubbles, so that someone would come down to his assistance. Two more men jumped in at this, and catching the turtle, they managed to turn him over, and bring him alongside the boat. Others in the boat got hold of the creature, and between them all it was hauled on board. Then the men in the water got in. It was not till now, when the excitement was past, that they found a man was missing Boba Winter. All looked and could see him nowhere. Men jumped overboard and searched, and the other boats coming up helped, but to no avail, he was gone. A great wailing and crying arose then, and by and by a shark was seen floating quietly about, and all remaining hope went. What seemed to strike the blacks was that they had seen no sign of the man, not even a particle of anything it was such a complete disappearance. Natives are exceedingly tender-hearted in anything like this, and they were dreadfully cut up. Bobba Winter's wife was in one of the boats. All camped that night at Canipa, towards the south end of Stradbroke, and next morning the beach was searched and searched, but nothing, not even a bone, was found. The story of Bobawinter's mysterious disappearance was told from tribe to tribe, the natives seemed as though they could never get over the sadness of it. One night the man already mentioned belonging to the pine was supposed to have had, a dream, in which a corroboree came to him descriptive of the event. The song ran as though the man from under the water, appealed for help pitifully, pleadingly, all in vain. This corroboree was sung and danced everywhere, and years afterwards the mere mention of it was enough to cause tears and wailings. The words had this meaning. My oar is bad, my oar is bad, send me my boat, I'm sitting here waiting, and soon, sun slowly. Then quickly, Dulpei La Nari Kimo Man, jump over for me friends, and so to the finish. Another good corroboree was based on an incident which happened when my father was a boy. This time it had reference to a young Jin Kulkarawa who belonged to the Brisbane or Turbul tribe a prisoner, a colored man, an Indian, shake brown by name, stole a boat, and making off down the bay, took with him this Kulkarawa, without her people's, immediate knowledge or consent. The boat was blown out to sea, and eventually the pair were washed ashore at Noosa Head or as the blacks called it then, Wantima, which meant, rising up, or, climbing up. They got ashore all right with just a few bruises, though the boat was broken to pieces. After rambling about for a couple of days, they came across a camp of blacks, and these latter took Kolkarawa from Sheikh Brown, saying that he must give her up, as she was a relative of theirs, but he might stop with them and they would feed him. So he stayed with them a long time, and the bonny season coming round, he accompanied them to the Blackall Range, joining in the feast there. Before the Bonnyi gathering had broken up, Sheikh Brown, grown tired of living the life of the blacks, left them to make his way to Brisbane. He got on to the old northern road going to Durandur, and followed it towards Brisbane. Coming at length to a creek which runs into the North Pine River, there, at the crossing, were a number of Turbul Blacks, who recognizing him, knew that he was the man who had stolen Kalkarawa. They asked what he had done with her, and he replied that the tribe of blacks he had fallen in with had taken her from him, and that she was now at the Bonya gathering with them. But this, of course, did not satisfy the feeling for revenge that Sheikh Brown had roused when he took off the young gin from her people, and they turned on him and killed him, throwing his body into the bed of the creek at the crossing. A day or two later, men with a bullock dray going up to Durinder with rations, passing that way, came across Brown's body lying there, and they sent word to Brisbane, also christening the Creek Browns Creek, by which, name it is known to this day. Kolkarawa, living with the Noosa blacks, fretted for her people, and she made a song which ran as follows, O, oh, flower, where o oh, where are you now that I used to eat? Oh, I take me back to my mother, there to be happy, and roam no more. She evidently missed the flower which her own tribe got from the white people. The Noosa Blacks made a dance to suit the song, and the corroboree was considered a grand one. Kolkarowa, after living with the Noosa Blacks for about two years, was at length brought back to her own people. Father happened to be out at the Bowen Hills or Baramban, camp, with two or three black boys, looking for some cows, at the time she arrived. The strange blacks bringing her, both went and sat down at the mother's hut without speaking, and the parents of the young Jin, and all her friends, started crying for joy when they saw her, keeping the cry going for some ten minutes in a chanting sort of fashion, even as they do when mourning for the dead. Then a regular talking match ensued, and Kulkarawa was told all that had happened during her absence, including the finding and murder of Sheikh Brown, or, Mary Dio, the blacks called him, on his way to Brisbane. Then she told her news, and father heard afterwards again from her own lips of her experiences. The Noosa blacks introduced the corroboree at the, Baramban, camp and so it was sung and danced all round about, spreading both near and far. In the song of a corroboree there were not generally many words, but these were repeated over and over again with different shades of expression. Once my father had the honor of being the subject of a corroboree, they sang of him as he was seen sailing with a native crew through the breakers over Maruchi Bar. The incident and its danger I will mention later. The song described the way he threw the surf from his face, etc. Who knows but what it lives somewhere yet, for it was possible for a corroboree to travel to the other end of the continent. A Manila man, who afterwards died at Miora, Dunwich, and whose daughter lives there now, once taught a song he knew to the Turbul Blacks. They did not understand its meaning in the least, but learnt the words and the tune, and it became a great favorite with all. My father also picked it up when a boy, and it has since soothed to sleep turn all his children and two grandchildren. Indeed, baby Arma, the youngest of the tribe, at one time refused to hear anything else when his mother sang to him. Sing me na, me na, he would say, if she dared try to vary the monotony. In learning a fresh corroboree, some of the young fellows were very smart, and as to going to a dance, they were just as keen about it as many white boys are. Tom Petrie's reminiscences, Chapter Four. Before going further, it is necessary for me to tell you something of a Turwin or great man well, a, turwin, was one who was supposed to be able to do anything, he could fly, kill, cure, or dive into the ground, and come out again where and when he liked, he could bring or stop rain, and so on, All by means of the, kundri, a small crystal stone, which he made the jinns and others believe he carried about inside him, being able to bring it up at will by a string and swallow again, But my father has seen these stones, and they were really carried in small grass, dillies, under the arm, and were attached with beeswax to a string made from opossum hair. These stones were generally obtained from deep pools, where they were dived for. The natives believed in a personality they called, Tagan, inadvertently spelt, Targon, in Dr. Roth's Bulletin, number five, who seemed to be the spirit of the rainbow, and he it was who was responsible for these stones or crystals. Wherever the end of the rainbow touched the water, there they said crystals would be found they knew where to dive for them. Several men possessing these stones belonged to every tribe. They were never young men, but those who had been through many fights, and had had experience. Each one was noted for something special. For instance, one was a man who could bring thunder, another could cure, and so on. Whenever there was a storm or a flood, the Aborigines always blamed a turwin of another tribe for sending it. Supposing the storm came from the north, it was a turwin from a tribe in the north who was responsible, or if from the south they blamed a southern tribe. When anyone was ill, he was taken to a turwin to be cured and the latter would make believe that he sucked a stone from the sick person's body saying that was the cause of the mischief another turwin of another tribe having put it into him for whenever anyone was ill no matter under what circumstances a stranger turwin or rather his spirit had most surely seen the afflicted one and thrown the country at him and a spirit could fly, and thus do damage on a man miles away. If found out too late nothing could save him. Aborigines do not believe they ever die a natural death. Death is always caused through a, Turwin, of another tribe. When a man dies, they think that at some previous time he has been killed before without its being known to anyone, even himself. Verily a strange belief. They think he was killed with the, country, and cut up into pieces, then put together again, afterwards dying by catching a cold, or, perhaps, being killed in a fight. The man who killed him then is never blamed for the deed, he had to die, you see. But they blame a man from another tribe for the real cause of death, and do their best to be revenged, this causes all their big fights. They managed to decide on the murderer how I will tell you again. If anyone was ill in camp, and a falling star was seen, there would be a great crying and lamenting. To the natives it was a sign that the sick one was doomed. The star was the fire stick of the Turwin, which he dropped as he flew away after doing the mischief. Talking of how the Aborigines regard death, brings us to their burial customs. Whenever the death of an aboriginal took place, all friends and relatives would gather together and cry, each man cutting his head with a tomahawk, or jobbing it with a spear, till the blood ran freely down his body, and the old women did the same thing with yam sticks, while the young gins cut their thighs with sharp pieces of flint stone till their legs were covered with blood. In the meantime a couple of men would get some sheets of tea tree bark on which to place the body, and if the corpse was not to be eaten, it would be wrapped up in this bark and tied round and round with string made from the inside of wattle bark. The feet were always left exposed. Then two old men would carry the body, those mourning following behind continually crying all the time. You could hear their cry a long way off. They would go some distance till they came to a tree, generally in a gully out of sight, with a fork in the stem, six or eight feet from the ground. Here they would pause and seek about for two suitable forked sticks to match this tree, and these they fixed in the ground at a little distance from it, making the forks correspond in height with that of the tree. Next two sticks cut about seven feet long would be placed from the fork sticks to the tree fork, and from this three-cornered foundation a platform would be made with sticks put across and bound with the wattle bark string. All being ready, the body would be lifted up onto this platform, which, without fail, would be made so that when the head was placed next the tree the feet would point always towards the west. After this, a space in the ground underneath the body about four feet square would be cleared bait of grass, and at one side of it a small fire would be built. This was that the spirit of the dead man might come down in the night and warm himself at the fire, or cook his food. If the body was that of a man, a spear or waddy would be placed ready, so that the spirit might go hunting in the night. If a woman then a yamstick took the place of the other weapon, and her spirit could also hunt, or dig for roots. These weapons were left that the spirits might obtain food, it was not supposed that they would ever fight. After finishing these preparations, the blacks would go away lamenting, and the body was left in peace. Then the day after burial, if it could be called burial and old, Turwin would go without the knowledge of the others back to where this platform stood erect with its burden, and stealthily he would print on the cleared ground beneath the mark like a footprint with the palm of his hand. After his departure, two women, old women, near relatives of the deceased, a mother and her sister if alive, would appear on the scene. They, of course, would see this mark, and at once would imagine that the murderer had been there and left his footprint behind him. Strange to say, too, they would recognize to whom the footprint belonged. So back they went to the others, and told them all who was the murderer. It was generally someone they had a spite against in another tribe, and there would be no question or doubt. After that, no one went near the body till the flesh had dropped off, when two old women, relatives, again went, and, taking it down, they would proceed to separate the bones from each other certain of these were always religiously put aside and kept they were the skull leg arm and hip bones while those of the ribs and back etc were burnt the bones kept were put in a dilly and so carried to the camp and this dilly with its sacred contents accompanied the old woman relative on all her wanderings for months afterwards in the meantime however the following happened At the camp a fire would be made some fifty or one hundred yards from the huts, and all hands were called to come and witness the performance. The bones were cleaned and rubbed with charcoal, and one of the old jinns who discovered the murderer's footmark would sit in the middle, the rest surrounding her, and she would take the hip bones, and, with a stone tomahawk, would chop them, accompanying each chop with the name of some black of another tribe sung in a chanting fashion. Now and again the bone would crack, and each time it did this the woman happened to call the name of the man she had told them of, who had left his footprint behind on the cleared ground, and the rest would exchange glances, saying he must be the guilty party. Father has been present on these occasions, and the blacks would always draw his attention to the unquestionableness of the conclusion arrived at. Nothing could persuade them that it was not fair, and should they come across the poor unfortunate singled out his death was a certainty. Perhaps some night he would be curled up asleep in the dark, when suddenly he was pounced upon and put out of existence. Or perhaps he would be innocently engaged at some occupation when a dark form, sneaking up behind him, would send a spear through his skull, or otherwise do the deed. The death always roused great desire for revenge, and the friends of the deceased would watch and plan in every way till at last their end was accomplished. And even when revenged like this, many a big fight took place over a death. For the tribe to which the dead man had belonged would send a challenge to the tribe of the man held responsible for the deed, by two messengers, carrying a stick mark with notches cut in it. This stick served to show that there were a great number of blacks, and that they were in earnest. The messengers suggested a place of meeting for the fight, and after staying perhaps a week would return to their friends, who would look forward to the affray. I have spoken of the blacks as cannibals, mentioning that it was only ordinary men and women of no condition who were buried. Here is how a cannibal feast would be proceeded with. First, the body was carried about a mile away from the camp, and there placed on sheets of tea tree bark near a fire. I may mention that it was a practice with the aboriginal to keep his body, minus the head, free from hair, by singeing himself with a torch. It was similar to the habit of shaving. Should an aboriginal be unsinged, he was unkempt, as a white man is who has not shaved. He could do his own arms and hands, etc., But would ask the assistance of others for the back. The singeing over, he rubbed his body with charcoal and grease, feeling then beautifully clean and nice. So perhaps it was this habit which made the aborigines singe their dead for the last time before devouring them. A turwin would take a piece of dry sapwood from an old tree, and lighting it well by the fire, would keep knocking off the red ashes till it burnt with a flame like a candle. With this he would give the body an extra good singeing all over, excepting the head, until the skin turned from black to a light brown color. Then the body would be rubbed free of any singed particles, and turned face downwards, and three or four men, who had been solemnly standing at some distance from the others, would slowly advance, one by one, singing a certain tune, to the body. Each of these men held a shell or stone knife in his hand, and the first would start by slitting the skin open from the head down the neck, then retiring. His place would be taken by the second man, who would carry the opening on down the body, the third man down the legs, and so on until the skin was opened right to the heels, and would peel off in one whole piece. During all this performance never a joke nor a laugh was heard, but everything was carried out with the utmost quietude and solemnity. The body would be cut up when skinned, and the whole tribe, sitting round in groups in a circle, each group possessing a fire, would watch expectantly for their share of the dainty. One can imagine how they would look forward to the feast as time advanced, and doubtless they watched with hungry eyes as the old men divided out the flesh in pieces to each lot. Immediately on grabbing their portion, each group would roast and devour it, and in no time, all was over and done. The heart and waste parts would be buried in a hole dug alongside the fire. And this interesting hole was marked by three sticks driven into the ground, standing about a foot high, and bound round with grass rope. The hair, ears, nose, and the toes and fingers, without the bones, would be left on the skin, which was hung on two spears before a fire to dry. Sometimes it would take some time to dry, and would have to be spread out each day. Then, when ready, it would be blackened with charcoal and grease. After that the skin was folded up and put into a dilly, and so carried everywhere by a relative with the certain bones that were kept. These remains were always carried by a woman relative, who kept them for six months or so, when she tired of the burden, or there was a fresh one ready to carry, and so a hollow tree or a cave in a rock was used as a depository. When my father came to North Pine there was a hollow gum tree near where he settled, full of skins and bones of the dead. This tree was burnt by bush fires, so, though part of it may still be seen, there is, of course, no trace of anything exciting in the way of remains. A tree used in this way was considered sacred, or, dimangali, and no one dared trifle with its contents. The remains were not just thrown into the hollow, but must be carefully left in dillies, and thus hung on fork sticks in the tree. A hollow tree was looked for with a hole in the trunk several feet from the ground, it must not open right down, or else a hollow one with no opening would be cut out as desired. The idea was to place the fork sticks in the earth, so that they stood upright, with the bags hanging on them. When my father was quite a boy he was sent once to look for some strayed cows to York's Hollow, the present Brisbane Exhibition Ground, which was all wild bush, and was a great fighting ground for the blacks. At the time of which I speak the blacks were all camped there, and when young, Tom, arrived on the scene he came across an old gin crying, and going up to her asked what was the matter. The woman replied that her, narrowing, son, had been killed and pulling an opossum skin covering from her dilly, displayed his skin. It made the boy start to see the hair of the head and beard, the fingers, etc., all on the skin, and going home he told grandfather about it. The latter offered flour, tea, sugar, tobacco, a tomahawk, anything for the skin, but the old woman would not part with it. Her husband, man-like, was more willing, however, and after some weeks turned up with a nice little new dilly, containing four pieces of his son's skin, two from the breast, and two from the hack, and this he presented to Tom, for his father. The scars or markings could be seen on these pieces, which were as thick almost as a bullock's hide. The old black fellow took pride in giving this present, and after so Hunu Ring, Tom, called him his son, and all the tribe looked upon the boy as such, and from that time forth he was considered a great man or Turwin, no one saying him nay, but doing anything for him and letting him know all their secrets. It got to be known all over the place from tribe to tribe that he had been presented with portions of Yabba's son's skin, and so he was received everywhere with open arms as it were, for Yabba was well known and respected. Women relatives of a dead person, possessing a skin, might give small portions from the back or breast to their friends of other tribes, when meeting them. The receivers would lament again over the skin when in their own camp, but having been given this, they felt quite safe about their men's relations visiting the tribe of the deceased, for this giving of skin meant that the recipient was not connected in any way with suspicion. The bodies of children were never skinned, they were placed up on trees unless in extra good condition, when they would be eaten. Very young children or babies were roasted whole, and women generally ate them. In some instances babies were killed at birth, and then eaten by the old women for instance, if the mother died, for they blamed the child. Cripples or deformed people were met often enough among the aborigines, some with withered limbs, and these were invariably treated kindly, as indeed were also all old people. Aborigines would live to be seventy or eighty years of age, and if at any time they were unable to fend for themselves, their relatives took them in hand, treating them with great respect and veneration. However, at death the bodies of cripples were just shoved anyhow into hollow logs. An aboriginal camp was always shifted immediately whenever a death took place, and the trees round about where a native had died, or where he had been eaten, would be nicked as a sign of what had taken place. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences. Chapter 5. Aborigines seldom had names alike, indeed they never had in the same camp. In that respect they surely were more original than we are with our Tom. Dick, and Harry, handed down from father to son. When an aboriginal child was about a week old, the mother would, after consulting with her friends, give it some pet name. The child would be called by the name of some animal, fish, or bird, or perhaps by that of a hollow log, or daylight, sundown, wind, flood, come quick, fetch it, go away, left it, and so on. The name, if the child was a girl, would remain with her her life through, but a boy's name was afterwards changed. During a man's life, he would possess three different names the first as a child, the second when he was transformed into a kibba, young man, and again the final when he became a grown man, malara, with a beard. This latter name was decided by men of his own tribe, and no special ceremony was held but friends would consult about it during some corroboree. No man was allowed to marry until he had come to possess his last name. Aboriginal boys were transformed into kippus, in this wise. When they were a certain age, say from 12 to 15 years, they went through a long ceremony, at the end of which they were looked on as young men. There were two different ways in which this ceremony might be carried out, the simple or curbing eye was resorted to when there were not so many boys to be put through, and these kippus, did not take as high a rank as those who had through the greater ceremony. In the same way as a boy nowadays, who has been to an inferior school cannot be expected to be as capable as another who has gone to a superior one. And often a boy would go through the greater ceremony when he had already been initiated at the curbing Eye. The simpler ceremony was carried out as follows: when a certain tribe wished to convert their boys into Kippas, they first picked two men and sent them as messengers to a neighboring tribe to see how many boys there were in the tribe ready to be initiated. Arriving in the near neighborhood of the camp, these men paused and decorated themselves. First a mixture of charcoal and grease was rubbed all over the body from head to foot, and this produced an extra glossy blackness. The aboriginals obtained plenty of grease from iguanas, snakes, fish, jugong, etc., and it was carried about with them in their dillies, always, rolled up in neat soft pieces of grass. They ate this grease at times, but apart from that must have used a great deal of it, for whenever they wanted to spruce up they always rubbed themselves with grease and charcoal it was evidently to them what our bath is to us they felt nice and fresh and dressed as it were the charcoal was the same as that used dry to rub on wounds and will be referred to again it was a very fine and soft powder and mixed up well with the grease When children were born, they were rubbed almost immediately with this mixture. It made them blacker than they would otherwise have been. To return to the two messengers. After anointing themselves in this fashion they would stick either feathers or swan's down in their hair with more grease, and then, according to the tribe to which they belonged, they decorated their bodies either in red, yellow, or white designs or patterns. After that, loitering till the sun went down, and darkness was upon them, they made towards the camp, each beating two boomerangs together, and singing as they went The recognized, kippah, song, till from the camp came an answering cry, the blacks there taking up the song and beating their boomerangs, giving thus an invitation to enter. The messengers would do so, and the song was continued, and sung to a finish by the whole of the blacks assembled, One can imagine how, after this, all would cluster round the visitors, hearing and telling the news, talking over affairs, and making arrangements for the journey to the scene of action, where the first tribe were camped. The journey was probably undertaken next day, and the messengers were accompanied by the whole tribe, with the exception of two men, who in turn went to their next neighbors, and so in the same way the news was carried from tribe to tribe till all the people round about men, women, and children were finally gathered together for the ceremony. In the meantime the blacks at the appointed place were not idle, they would build a large bush fence or shade, some distance away from the main camp, formed in a half circle, to be used in the daytime as a protection from the sun for the boys, and also partly to hide them. Two or three huts nicely fashioned from tea tree bark were also put up about 100 yards from the bush shade, and these last were the sleeping abodes for the youngsters. Though each fresh tribe as it arrived would camp just as it was for the first night men, women, and children together the women had afterwards to build their own huts some good distance from the boys quarters. The morning after the arrival of each tribe, the youngsters who were to go through the ceremony would all be taken away from the camp, so that they could not hear what their parents and others were talking about there, and when they were out of sight the fathers, mothers, and the rest would get together and suggest names for the boys. When agreed as to each name, the men would proceed to where the boys were, leaving the jinns behind, and when they're a turwin, going up to a boy. Would whisper in his ear a name. Then, turning round, would call it out in a loud voice, the result being a regular roar and howl as the others present took up the name. After each boy had had his turn, the men would start singing the Kippa song, then all proceeded back to camp, THF boys returning to their parents. This little preliminary over, the men of one tribe would go to another tribe and demand the lads from their mothers who, of course, had to submit. These men must be of no relation to the boys. They would take them again into the bush, far enough away so that the jinns could not see nor hear them, and there they gave the boys their instructions. The youngsters were told that they must not, on pain of death, ask for anything, in fact speak at all, neither must they eat eggs, rows of fish, nor any female animal, and they must not look up to the sky. If they desired even to scratch themselves, they must do it, not with their hands, but with a stick. The men maintained that if the boys looked up the sky would fall and smother them, and the youngsters were made to believe this. Some, I suppose, were more credulous than others. As for the non-eating of eggs, rose, etc., That was kept up after the ceremony. In fact, the boys were not allowed to eat these things till they had become grown or full-bearded men. My father used to think the idea a good excuse for the old people to claim the best and daintiest food. An instrument called the Bugaram was now brought into use. It was a thin piece of wood a quarter of an inch thick, cut in the shape of a paper knife, and was about seven inches long and two inches wide it was attached by means of a hole at the end, to a string eight or nine feet long, and when swung round the head would make a roaring noise like a bull. The jinns, who were never allowed to see a, bagaram, and to whom the actual ceremony of kippa making was never revealed for if they were discovered seeking out the secrets of the mystery they would certainly be killed were persuaded that the, great men, actually swallowed the boys, afterwards vomiting them up again on the day of the, great fight, which ended the ceremonies. The unearthly roaring sounds made with the bugaram, were supposed by the jinns to be the noise the great men, made in swallowing. After sounding these instruments and displaying them for some time before the boys, of whom there might be some fifteen or twenty, the men took their charges to the bush shade prepared for their use, and here they were placed lying down on the ground in the half-circle, each boy's head on another's hip. In this position they stayed till they tired, when they might sit up with their legs crossed, tailor fashion, but only provided their heads were covered with an opossum rug for sitting up, they were out a little from the shelter of the bushes, and could otherwise see the sky. Centuries, old men, armed, of course, were posted over the boys, prepared to spear any youngster who might be tempted to look up or laugh, or otherwise break through the rules, and the rest of the men went out hunting, generally returning before sunset, when they gave the boys something to eat and drink. Father who saw all these ceremonies when a boy, would sometimes plague the lads when the old warriors had their backs turned, tempting them to look up, etc. The bays would grin and perhaps do so, though they dare not before the men. Children, black and white, are much the same the world over, I suppose, and of course these boys would speak if they got the chance. When dusk came on the men would assemble in a crowd before the boys, and go through all sorts of antics jumping, and dancing, and laughing, and mimicking everything they could think of. With their fun they tried to tempt the boys to laugh and speak or look up, and they chaffed the lads considerably, shouting that their mothers were calling and appealing to their superstitious notions. The capers some of these men would cut, and the way they walked and talked and strutted about, must indeed have been laughable. They would get hold of fire sticks, and two or three would perhaps hold a poor, unfortunate companion by the shoulders and legs in midair, while yet another would poke a fire stick at him from below, making him squirm and jump. Even that would not bring a laugh from the boys, who knew better, having been warned beforehand. In addition to all this, the men went through with a half-song, half-dance, which was kept sacred for these occasions, and was a secret from all the womenfolk. They also played with the wobalkan, an instrument like a bugarum, only smaller, being a flat piece of wood one inch wide, and four inches long, which was tied fast to three feet of string, ending, unlike the bugarum, in a handle similar to that of a stockwhip, and like a whip it was used, making a humming noise when whirled round, then, as it was cracked, the noise resembled the bark of a dog. The boys beheld these for the first time, they were too precious for everyday use, women never saw them. With regard to the, Bugaram, and, Wobalkan, the writer can say from experience that there is no exaggeration in the description of the noises made, the bark, for instance, being remarkably like that of a dog. No wonder the jinns were afraid and crouched back into their huts, not knowing what the sound came from. Thirty or so of these going all at once would make a frightful row, and in the dark it would be most uncanny. The peculiar sound struck a chord of doubtful sympathy in our dog's nature one day, evidently, when Father twirled and cracked up Warbalcon to show us its nature, for the animal ran as though he never meant to come back again. To return to the kipper making. This trial of the boys, as it were, was kept up for a couple of hours or so, then in pairs the lads were marched off with their heads covered two men leading the way with spears and waddies, the rest walking on either side, until they arrived at their sleeping camp, where they were put into the huts for the night, men camping all round them. Much the same sort of program was carried out day and night for three or four weeks, at the end of which time, according to this lesser ceremony, the boys had become, kippers. Always after, kippa making, the blacks had a great fight to prepare for this event, each boy was now taken in hand by a black fellow belonging to a tribe other than his own, who would dress him up. First, it goes almost without saying, that the lads were rubbed over with charcoal and grease from head to foot, they would not be dressed otherwise. Then their noses were painted red with a fine red powder procured by rubbing two stones, cinnabar, sulfide of mercury, together, these stones could only be got in certain places, and when rubbed into the skin this powder produced a beautifully glossy color. On any important occasion, the black men always had their noses red. Bodies were painted in different styles, but noses were all the same. So it was with the boys. I have described how a man in full dress would perhaps be all white down one side, and black the other, and so on, according to his tribe, and these boys were now painted in the same way. Also, like the men, they would have the various bands and belts mentioned. In addition, however, a kippah would wear a snake throttle tied round his forehead, which had previously been cut out. Slit open, and wound round a stick to keep it flat. This belonged especially to a kipper's dress, as did also a sort of tail which hung from the back of one of the forehead bands almost to the ground. This tail, wongan, was made from opossum hair, twisted up on the thigh into strings. Similar strings were worn crosswise over the chest and back, forming what was called a barbon. The rest of the dress was similar to a man's the parrot feathers or the swan, s down the necklace etc. When a boy was ready dressed he would have a small dilly presented to him which had been made especially Lly by his mother or sister. He never owned such a thing before though he might often play with one. The string handle would be put over his head and the bag itself under his arm he would carry red powder for his nose in this, also a, wabalkan, which latter was given him that he might play with it when alone in camp. Being now, full-dressed, he was.